Hello and welcome to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. I'm John Biggs. Today on the show we have Joe Brewer, a thinker in climate theory and the future of change. This is Technotopia. Welcome back to Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. Today we're talking with Joe Brewer, a you're, you're a change strategist. You're a uh, you're a thinker about cognitive uh, changes, uh, and you want to improve the world over the next hundred years. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm very interested in what we can do with our understanding of what it means to be human to make the future a better place for all of us. Okay, so tell tell the world a little bit about yourself before we get into this. Well, uh, I have a bit of a funny background, okay. and I usually start off by saying that I was born and raised on a chicken farm in rural Missouri, and that I graduated high school just as the internet was becoming a thing for the public, and that bit of background helps explain my weird academic kind of intellectual journey of meandering through lots of different fields. Basically, I went to college and just had this full-ride scholarship, could study whatever the hell I wanted, so I studied philosophy and physics and applied mathematics got into chaos theory, complexity science, went to grad school in, uh, in atmospheric science, and then shifted into uh, um, to doing cognitive and behavioral science. So I've kind of been all around the map. And uh, if I were to take all of that meandering and kind of con condense it into two things, I'm really interested in studying people and patterns. Okay. So that's a lot of that's a lot of education. So what have what kind of patterns and and people have you discovered? Well, there's one of the things that I've discovered is that a lot of our institutions in the world, like take the academic uh, matrix of the you know the thousands of universities in the world, are structured to silo our knowledge and make it really difficult to put the pieces together. It's kind of like a, a multi-hundred-year uh, Humpty Dumpty. We've gradually broken Humpty, Dump, Humpty Dumpty apart, and we've had a hard time putting the pieces back together again. So as I've meandered across the different fields, I found that there are patterns of convergence that often the people in each field don't see uh, because they're kind of in the weeds and there's a whole forest. And one of the places I've seen this is in the cognitive and behavioral sciences, where for over 40 years now, there's been a growing body of research across literally dozens, if not a hundred research areas that are all converging on this one understanding that the way that the human mind works is it's fundamentally embodied. So the kinds of brains we have, the kinds of bodies we have, the kinds of physical and social environments we find ourselves in all help give shape to the, the way that we make sense of the world, the way that we um, arise in groups and make sense of things with shared stories and shared beliefs and the way that we conform to the social norms of others around us, and so on, all those sorts of things. And this key understanding that our, our minds are fundamentally embodied gives us a, a kind of foundation for universalism. We can see what's common across all human beings. And then also where our differences in culture arise and how those differences can emerge. And so that's a really powerful uh, way of distinguishing what we can understand about all human beings and then what we have to look at you know, business leadership culture in Chinese corporations and how they're different from Silicon Valley, where, you know, the cultural differences um, are one kind of thing we have to take into account. 
But then other things like uh, the way that emotions shape reasoning, which has to do with how our midbrain speaks with our forebrain. Uh, that's more of a common thing across all humans. Okay. Well, I think we just, we went, <laughs> we went pretty deep just now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's unpack this. This is, this is good stuff. So we're talking about the human brain being embodied, the idea that we can't, our intellects, personal intellects can't escape uh, the physical confines. And I feel like, I feel like I need to take a, a vaporizer puff here. Uh, they can't escape the confines of the embodiments in which we exist. Therefore, a lot of the problems that we see can't be solved individually, but collectively, something to that, to that degree. Uh, another way of saying it would be uh, that we can't solve it in a piecemeal manner. Um, we can't use the old school thing of reductionism, where you like take a complex thing and break it into simple parts and then try to put the simple pieces back together again. Uh, instead, we have to take an emergentist point of view, which is that we have to see how when the pieces work together, there are patterns that emerge through the interactions. And this is really important uh, philosophically because one of the big missteps, in a sense, of uh, the Western philosophical tradition was Cartesian dualism. And actually goes back even to Plato with his mind. There's this kind of mind-body dualism where we separate the mind from the body. We separate reason from emotion. We separate the individual from the collective. All these things that are conceptual differences that are not real. Um, and yet when we live them out and believe them to be real, they have consequences. And so... Uh, we kind of have to start from a place of recognizing how all the pieces were never separated and then see how the interacting parts give rise to things like uh, the way that markets function or how governance works or doesn't work at different scales of human groups. These sorts of things that have seemed to be too tricky or slippery to, to pin down, well, they actually can be pinned down if we understand how the pieces interact together to create the patterns. Wow, beautiful. Okay, so... How does that help us as as monkeys on this planet? How how are we going to be able to um, move past that and into, I guess, a brave new world where a lot of the problems that we're looking at are going to be solved? And I think I think your bet is that over the next hundred years we're going to be we're going to be solving this, right? Well, I, I kind of see it as a we have no choice but to solve it. Mm -hmm. um, now, part of my training is in climate science, and so I have a pretty good understanding of the the latency effects and the feedbacks that are in the planetary climate system. And we've definitely crossed some tipping points. We definitely have some uh, uh, global warming effects that are going to continue to intensify for up to a few hundred years to a thousand years, unless we uh, go from deteriorating the environment to regenerating it. And I like to think of this as a difference between um, kind of the the early industrial idea of just cutting down trees to build cities or covering cities, cityscapes with concrete um, and basically killing off the, the biosphere, the natural environment from functioning. To go from that to a mindset like a gardener, where a gardener will take a piece of, of land that isn't very productive, that mm -hmm. isn't very healthy, and then build a, a, a symbiotic or a, a mutually beneficial relationship with it and, and make both the gardener and the land healthier at the same time. I think in a very important way, recognizing that the gardener is embedded in relationship with the land, meaning, like I said a few minutes ago about mind-body, that they're not separate. They're actually part of the same interacting system. If we can take that insight, then we can see how a lot of the problems we, that 
we're dealing with in the world are a kind of mindless consequence as contrasted with a mindfulness or a a mindful awareness of the consequences of our behavior. If we're not aware of the consequences of our behavior, then we can have all sorts of bad things happen and not understand them. But if we have the ability to think systemically and understand the kind of pattern logic of how systems behave that we're part of, then we can choose which kinds of relationships we want to have with those systems. And then we can shape the way that those systems behave. So is this is this as simple as deciding to recycle, or is this a more uh, is this a larger problem, or is this a larger, uh, more expansive solution? Uh, I I think it's more expansive and larger in that um, we basically have to start from a place of thinking systemically, which is really a process of ongoing learning and increasing humility. So the more that we uh, work with a system that is emergent and complex, the more we recognize that uh, we can't simply control it and we can't be in charge of it, that we really have to be in a relationship that's more like uh, improvisational dance, where there's something emerging and we have to work with whatever emerges. But it really helps if we understand what the underlying cause-effect relationships are so that when we see things merging, our attempts to understand them are more likely to be correct. Okay, interesting. So, what are you working on specifically that's uh, that's leading towards this uh, this goal? One of the projects that I'm working on is a basic reframing of poverty and inequality. And we did this really interesting study about four years ago. It was a linguistic study, so we looked at the language people were using, and we we picked two different groups. We had what I would call the anti-poverty groups, so nonprofit organizations that were trying to reduce poverty in the world. So think of like Save the Children or Oxfam International, those kinds of organizations. And we looked at how they talked about poverty, the language that they use. And then we looked at groups that want to create poverty, the kinds of people that want to uh, generate more wealth for themselves and become richer and have more material accumulation for themselves. And they don't really care what happens to everyone else. And, you know, we don't necessarily need to name who these people are, but they're usually the ones that, you know, spread lies about the effectiveness of government, and they uh, are perfectly happy to blame victims of uh, systemic consequences for things. And so we looked at the language of these different groups and found that the people who want to create poverty often had very tangible morality tales about individuals doing things and individuals being responsible. So they'd say things like, well, people are poor because they're lazy and they don't work hard enough. And this makes sense and it's easy to understand, but it just happens to mostly not be correct when we look at you know, the, the empirical studies of how poverty works. A lot of hardworking people can never really get ahead in life. But when we looked at the language of the anti-poverty groups, they always used passive language. And they would say things like, poverty levels rose by 10%. But by using that language, they would obscure causation and they would conceal human agency that there were active design choices being taken to create conditions that would cause wealth hoarding to happen, which would mean that it would create systemic deprivation for a large number of people and increase poverty. So when we looked at this in the language uh, of these different groups, we realized that the way to intervene was to create strategies for different kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. So start to tell stories of how poverty is created, introduce agency and moral agendas, kind of bring political agendas back in the discussion where they were being obscured. And by doing that, um, 
connect those stories to really good research on like economic history or structural policy analysis that compares different economies. You know, where there's really good social science research, but the storytelling was not connecting that research to a people's basic understandings of how things happen in the world. So this is an example of the kind of thing that, that I do and that my collaborators I work with, that we do, is we look at um, what you might just call like really good trend analysis mm-hmm. of how patterns are emerging in the world. So like, let's look at the period of nation building in the last 100, 150 years, where a lot of new nations formed, a lot of new democracies came into being. Uh, a lot of those democracies arose with a kind of industrialization. You know, you'd see these patterns emerging in history, and then have really good like empirical analysis behind them. And then we connect those those historic studies with language analysis that would tell us what the thought constructs are that people have, how they think about, how they perceive, and how they understand patterns that they see in the world. And it's amazing how often the patterns in people's minds are very much uh, divorced from the patterns of how things happen in the world. So there's this need for a kind of story intervention to uh, correct those gaps. Okay. So what... Interesting. So the so the mission there is to is to say that is to move the idea like of negative climate change away from the realm of oops we did something wrong to the realm of we did this this and this and these are the things that need to be done to repair this this solution right yeah like one of the things that's happened with the conversation about global warming is it's been turned into a technocratic scientific discussion about the levels of carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And those levels of carbon dioxide are very important, but what's actually more important is talking about what it means to be human and the human relationship to the natural world. So let's take the uh, the typical kind of Genesis to, you know, the second chapter of Genesis, mm-hmm. a Christian story, which is basically a story of God creating the earth and then God creating humans, and then humans having dominion over the earth. And there are different interpretations of what dominion means. But one way we could think of dominion is that we are kind of the superior species and it's our right to use it however we see fit. We can dominate and control it and exploit it for our own gain. Mm -hmm. So that's one way of thinking of that. Another way of thinking of it is that we are um, held responsible with the duty of taking care of it, which is more of a mindset of stewardship. So I had this difference in framing the relationship of humans to the land as one of dominion and conquering and exploitation, or one of partnership and stewardship, those are very different conceptual representations of the relationship. So which one we choose is going to have consequences for how how the world changes, because those ways of thinking will lead to different behaviors. Those behaviors will arise as different institutional models, like ways of running business or ways of uh, you know, creating agriculture or managing the land or so forth. So the the conceptualization in our language and in our mental models needs to align with the outcomes that we want. And we need to be able to discern the difference between one mental model and the behavioral outcomes and another mental model and the behavioral outcomes so that collectively we can choose which future we want. Okay. So what are some of the tools that we're going to be seeing uh that will enable us to choose that future, I guess. Well, one of them that's already emerging in the world of social media and big data is a kind of semantic analysis using large amounts of 
of semantically tagged information. So you've probably seen things like the mood maps on Twitter, where they have a, a lexicon of terms that have a negative emotional valence, so they're sad, angry, frustrated, etc. And another set of words that are about positive emotions, happy, joyful, exuberant, hopeful, optimistic, etc. So they have the ability to look at the, ge the geographic spread of emotions that emerge collectively on social media, and then track them minute by minute, hour by hour, and create... Uh, like spatial maps of the United States or the entire planet. Mm -hmm. So we have this kind of amazing new uh, data-driven social science because, uh, because we now have a lot of technology tools that create data trails for human behaviors. You know, like if you uh, have your GPS on your, uh, on your smartphone and you walk around the city that you live in, you can create a mobility pattern of yourself walking around the city. We have all these ways that humans are interacting in the world culturally that were largely invisible to us in the past. But because of these data trails and these analytic tools, we can create visualizations of those collective behaviors. And this is one of the things that's going to be transformative for how we understand culture and how we see ourselves embedded within cultural systems. And I think we're just at the beginning of what's going to be possible with this kind of an approach. Wow. Okay. So, and that's just one. I mean, there, there are plenty of other things that we could talk about, but, but just taking that as an example, if you think about uh, transportation patterns for a city, like the way that Google Maps uses GPS in people's phones, as well as traffic data from municipalities and county governments and state governments, to tell you which path is the best path to take from where you are to wherever you want to go with real-time traffic data, this is the kind of thing that we're now able to do. If we project forward 10, 20 years in time, we're going to have that kind of information deeply connected with meteorological data, other kinds of environmental monitoring data. And so we'll be able to see very richly how human systems, non-human environmental systems, and then things like the built environment, the way we build our cities, um, these things we'll have a very rich understanding of and very powerful storytelling tools for helping guide how we change them. Okay. So what does the world look like in the next uh, 15 to 20 years? What is it? What, what is, what has changed? Has anything changed? I think the next 15 years is going to be continual, accelerating, exponential change on almost all fronts. And what that means is it's going to be turbulent. It's going to be volatile. It's going to create a tremendous amount of stress. I think there will be a lot of hardship. So we're going to see things like the Syrian refugee crisis. I think we're going to see a lot more of things like that, a lot more displacement. We're already seeing in a lot of cities in the world where people are no longer able to afford to live where they work because wages are stagnating relative to rising rental costs. And so we're going to see a number of old business models at the scale of cities and regional economies and national economies that are going to break. Uh, that are increasingly broken. And what that means is that we're going to start to see disruptive technologies that are social technologies, ways of, um, of organizing ownership and equity in businesses. So you see this already with things like uh, cooperative ownership models or co-ownership models that, are, that have been growing for decades. And I think the current statistic is somewhere around one and a half to two billion people are members of co-ops. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing this, this gradual growth in a very different way.
meaning we're going to take our understanding of how living systems work and we're going to apply them to all sorts of things. High performance buildings, transportation systems that are structured to grow like mushrooms and the networks of mycelia and forests. We're going to see knowledge ecologies for how human resource departments and companies do hiring. We're going to see just a whole flood of things where more of the knowledge from ecology and biology are going to be applied to human system design. And that's just going to be across the boards. And so basically, I think the next 15, 20 years are going to be a time of immense turbulence, which will create a lot of stress. We'll see things like here in the U.S. political system now with the, uh, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon breaking in the Democratic Party and the Donald Trump phenomenon breaking the Republican Party. A lot of older structural systems are breaking down and then there'll be disruptions and they'll be replaced. They'll be transformed in, in rapid order, creating hardship and uncertainty and chaos, uh, while at the same time planting seeds for the new. And I just think the next 15, 20 years are going to be a whole hell of a lot of that. Okay. Is that, a, uh, is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's both. Okay. Um, it's really both. Because you know, like one of the things about the uh, kind of apocalyptic thinking of environmentalists is, you know, like say the 1970s environmentalist, because the environmental movement's come a long way since then, where basically the idea was that they took the fear of nuclear holocaust and then they applied it to the environment. That was like 1975 environmentalism. Mm -hmm. The thing that people often don't realize now is that that apocalyptic future already exists. Just look at sub-Saharan Africa. There's a phenomenon that happened in sub-Saharan Africa, and the scientific community has only come to a proper understanding of it in the last decade. And that is that a lot of the starvation and the genocides and the civil wars of those countries in sub-Saharan Africa throughout the last 20, 30 years can be linked back to the rise of industrial factories in the West, principally um, British and North American, and the consequences of air pollution spreading and creating a kind of climate change that shut down a, mon a monsoon pattern that happened in the Sahel Desert. And if you were to look at, if you type into Google Sahel Monsoon, mm -hmm. you'll see that up to about 1960, it was very volatile and intense, meaning there was a year-to-year -year monsoon. And by the end of the 1960s, it had completely collapsed like someone had turned it off. So basically, this pattern of bringing moisture into the center of Africa turned off 50 years ago and has not returned. And there is now a widespread pattern of desertification and all of the things like collapse of uh, food production, civil wars, genocides, etc. So this apocalyptic future everyone's afraid of. It already happened. For 50 years. And if anything, it, we're seeing in places like the Middle East is the next wave of it. There's a fair amount of research that what's happening in Syria is connected to long-term changes in climate, connected to globalization as well. So the challenge for us is to recognize that these disruptions that are very negative are lessons for us to understand that we can't let this happen on a planetary scale and that the rapidity and size of change, kind of the speed and scale of change that is coming, is much bigger than most of us are preparing for. But if we can wrap our heads around how the change works, then we can become architects of the future with greater empowerment than any generation of human beings in history. Basically, we have the opportunity between now and about 2030 to set in motion ways of teaching people at universities, ways of designing and building cities, ways of organizing and managing people in every kind of organization that can transform the planet 
And so this is one of the most inspiring and empowering times to create change, mainly because the consequences are so dire if we don't, and the scale uh, and the risk associated with the scale of change is so significant. All right. Well, that's that's wonderful stuff. This is this is one of the uh, <laughs> you were you were speaking in full paragraphs there, which is a which is a real treat for the uh, for the podcast community. Um, Joe, thank you very much. Where can people find more information about what you're working on? Uh, an easy way to find me is to uh, just type my name into Google or Twitter or um, uh, Facebook, and you'll find me pretty quickly. But I also have a website, changestrategistforhumanity.com. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a good way to contact me. Um, and at this point in time, I'll just share that uh, one of the big things I'm working on is really just telling the story that a design science of intentional social change is ready to be birthed. All of the pieces are there in different disciplines. And I'm collaborating with a global network of researchers in more than 50 nations around the world to build the institutional capacity for this so that this large change process that I was just uh, rambling about a few minutes ago, uh, so that we can get a handle on it collectively. Mm -hmm. All right, excellent. And where is that going to be headquartered? Is that on a site yet or is that... Uh, Well, we have a site, culture.design, which if you go there now, you'll see it's under construction. Um, But we'll have a a kind of simple version of it up in the next few weeks and then be building it out from there. All right. Let me know. I'd love to follow back up with this. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. All right. Thank you very much, Joe. I'm John Biggs. This is Technotopia, a podcast about a better future. Joe, this has been incredible. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me.